Well, listen, let me invite you to open up uh, God's Word today. We're going to be in Mark 15 and John 19. Mark 15 and John 19. And these uh, verses will also be on our screen here behind me. But I, I am uh, preaching out of this. The main text in a lot of these scriptures today will be out of the Passion Translation. The Passion Translation. I tell you that because it's worded a little different than some of the others. New King James, King James, NIV, or what have you. But we're going to be in Mark 15. As we are continuing in our Easter series called It Is Finished, But It's Not Over. It Is Finished but it's not over. Let's look at this text today, Mark 15, verse 24. We're going to be piecing together this story between Mark and John. It says, they nailed his hands, Jesus, they nailed his hands and feet to the cross. The soldiers divided his clothing among themselves by rolling dice to see who would win them. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they finally crucified him. Above his head they placed a sign with the inscription of the charge against him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 29. Those who passed by shook their heads and spitefully ridiculed him saying, Aha, you boasted that you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And why don't you save yourself now? Just come down from the cross. Verse 31. Even the ruling priest and the religious scholars joined in the mockery and kept laughing among themselves, saying, He saved others, but he can't even save himself. Israel's king, is he? You know, sometimes God sets up our, our story to make it look like it's over. But just so he can show the world that it's not. Verse 33, for three hours, beginning at noon, darkness came over the earth. And about three o'clock, Jesus shouted with a mighty voice in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you turned your back on me? John's account at that particular point picks up in John 19. Verse 25, it says, Mary, Jesus' mother, was standing next to his cross, along with Mary's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus looked down and saw the disciple he loved standing with her, he said, Mother, look, John will be a son to you. And then he said, John, look, she will be a mother to you. And from that day on, John accepted Mary into his home as one of his own family. Verse 28. Jesus knew that his mission was accomplished, and to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A lot to be said there. Let's pray over this text. Oh God, we are thankful for what you have to say. We're thankful that this, this story is not just something that is history in the sense that it happened and oh well, but it's history in the sense that it's still alive. It still lives because Jesus, you still live today. And Lord, we know this world is pushing in and there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of temptation in this life. But Jesus, come, be great in our life today. Be great in our life this week as we celebrate this holy week. 
let it not just be a, a familiar story, but let, let it be real and captivating in our hearts. Let our devotion, O oh God, grow for you. Our desire for you increase. Our longing for you, O oh God, to want to please you, may it grow. So right now, Holy Spirit, come speak to us. Make the words of your, of, on these pages come alive to our lives. We give you this time and attention now in Jesus' name. And everybody can say, Amen. In the early 1990s, I read a pretty, pretty powerful book called Six Hours, One Friday. I don't know if anybody knows that book, but my, by a pastor and author, Max Licato. He's written a couple of books. You might be familiar with him. Um, but it's a phenomenal book that really goes about the, the significance of the final six hours of Christ's life on the cross and just really elaborates about what that has to say. And, and it was during those final six hours where Jesus was hanging between heaven and earth. I mean, pain, if I could try to describe the pain, I, I, I couldn't do it justice because the pain was unbearable to him, but yet he endured it, yet he stayed with it. And, and as we read there in the opening text that the, the priests and people were saying, hey, why, why don't you just save yourself if you are who you are, if you are who you say you are, then why don't you do something about it? They wanted him to perform. And all he was called to do was die. And those final six hours as he's hanging there, he pronounces seven final statements that really, um, that really kind of really show us who, his heart about us. And we covered two of them last week. We covered, um, we covered um, let's see, we covered Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we covered the second one when he speaks to the criminal on the cross beside him. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today we're going to try to cover three, four, and five, which is this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the, the fourth one is, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. And then the last is this, I thirst. So we're going to try to go through those if we can. Because next week we're going to get to the final two. But I've titled today's message in this series, I've titled it, A Refreshed Life and a Rested Soul. A refreshed life and a rested soul. Jesus made this third statement as he's hanging on the cross. He makes seven. The third is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in the Passion Translation, it says, why have you turned your back on me? Anybody ever been in a conversation or a heated debate or perhaps witnessed one where you're, the, the two are talking and they're going at it in disagreement or what have you, and then one decides to say something and then turn around and storm out the, out the door, out the room, and what us, what's usually said don't you turn your back on me, right? Don't you turn your back on me. Why? Because that brings a breach in the relationship. For the first time, Jesus was feeling what it was like to have a breach in his relationship with God the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was, he was in torture. He was in pain, in his body, but really it was his soul that was feeling the greater agony because he was willingly taking sin upon himself. He was living out what Paul preached to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Literally, Jesus on the cross was becoming sin for us. And that 
is why he was feeling such pain. Obviously in the physical, but inwardly, deep inside, he was feeling a separation from God. And he's hanging there on the cross in this statement that he makes. Why have you forsaken me, my God? He's reminding us and letting us know that sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. Let's look at what Paul preached to the Romans in Romans chapter 3. Look at this text. It says, for everyone has sinned, and we fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin, and people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood, and this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Verse 26, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. If you don't think God is fair and just, he is fair and he is just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they go to church. Oh, wait, I, sorry. Uh, when they believe in Jesus. Not when you jump through religious hoops. Not when you dot your I's and cross all your T's and be a, little, a good little boy or little girl and sit nicely in church. No, it's when you believe wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ. You make him Lord and you make him Savior of your life. And Jesus on the cross, be, feeling this separation and relationship with God his Father, is showing us that is the same kind of separation humanity feels when we let sin do its thing in our life. Now let me just kind of make it as simple as I can so that we don't try to you know, um, make varying degrees of this sin or that sin, or I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that. Here's the basic definition of sin. Anything that causes us to miss our mark with God. Sin is in definition disobedience to whatever God says. Okay? So any one of us, Paul preached it and wrote it, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We all miss our mark. But Jesus died on the cross, became our sin, became the payment for sin in our place. And when we put our hope and faith in him and make him Lord and Savior, here's what happens. We get on track with God. We begin to hit our mark with what God had created our lives for, and we have a relationship with love. Now, here's the thing. Because of that, we don't have to live separated from God because of what Jesus did. And I think if we take on the attitude of what David showed us in Psalm 51, it's, uh, I've chosen the Passion Translation for this out of Psalm 51. Now, let me set this up real quick. David, David was known as a man who was after God's own heart, but yet David also was a person who made many mistakes. But David knew that when he sinned, he also knew how to repent. And that is the difference. And, and so David had become king, and David had committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, and he ended up covering it up and uh, cre uh, creating this elaborate story and this scheme to have the woman's husband killed in battle because he was in the army with David, uh, under David, and all that happened, and David thought he was okay. David thought, I got it covered, it's all good, and, uh, and I'm fine. But then a prophet comes along, uh, by the name of Nathan, he tells David what he had done. And so David is busted. David is busted. David got caught, and David began to realize, I can't live like this. 
I can't stay like this. And so he wrote this psalm, and it's a prayer, a prayer of forgiveness, a prayer of repentance, a prayer of humility. And he says this prayer, God, give me mercy from your fountain of forgiveness. I know your abundant love is enough to wash away my guilt because your compassion is so great. Take away this shameful guilt of sin. Forgive the full extent of my rebellious ways and erase this deep stain on my conscience. It's nothing like having a guilty conscience. He says, for I am so ashamed, I feel such pain and anguish within me. I can't get away from the sting of my sin against you, Lord. Jump down to verse next part. Everything I did, back up, everything I did, I did right in front of you. For you saw it all against you, God. And you above all have I sinned. Everything you say to me is infallibly true, and your judgment conquers me. Verse 10. Create a new clean heart within me, and fill me with pure thoughts and holy desires, ready to please you. And may you never reject me. May you never take me from your sacred spirit. And let my passion for life Here's the thing, sin sucks the passion for living out of us. Anything we allow to separate us from God, it sucks the passion for life. And David prayed, let my passion for life be restored, tasting joy in every breakthrough that you bring to me. Hold me close to you with a willing spirit that obeys whatever you Say We don't have to live separated from God. We can have a heart like David had and pray a similar prayer like David prayed. Really a prayer of humility, a prayer of forgiveness, a prayer of repentance. And here's what happens. God every time does that. He takes away our guilty stains. And so if any moment any one of us ever feel far from God, for whatever it is, here's the, here's the thing. The devil wants you to live in condemnation. The devil wants you to feel bad always about what we do. The devil wants you, he wants to make you feel so guilty that you leave God and you leave the church. That's what he wants. Because when that happens, he knows you will never live for the purpose you were created for. Which is to honor and glorify God. He will, he, that's what he wants. So anytime we feel that, we need to understand that part of condemnation is from the enemy. That is not from God. For there is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So anytime you feel far from God, disconnected from God, pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. Father, forgive me of my sins. And we will no longer be saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll be able to say with great assurance, my God, my God, you have forgiven me. You have forgiven me. You have made me free. You have made me clear. You have made me clean. You have lightened my life because that is what Jesus does. The devil brings condemnation. Jesus obviously brings conviction, but with the conviction, he brings a restoration of life with Christ, a life with God. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus reminds us, don't let anything be bigger in your life than I am. The next statement, he says this. Now, remember, he's not having a conversation. He's, he's hanging on the cross. He's literally dying. And he makes seven statements. He's dying. He makes seven statements. Last words out of a person dying generally come right from, right from the heart. 
with every ounce of breath he can muster up because he can barely breathe as being crucified. You can barely breathe, and he's doing all he can to breathe and utter these statements. He looks down, and he sees Mary, his mother. He sees John. He sees some others, and he says, Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. You know, the first time Jesus referred to his mother as woman was at the beginning of his ministry when they attended a wedding. There was a wine problem at a wedding. And his mother said, hey, you need to do something about this. And he was like, well, it's really not my time. But she's like, I don't want to hear it. You're my boy. You're going to do whatever I tell you to do. Fix this problem, son. Now it's at the end of his time. And instead of a wine problem at a wedding, it's a world problem on a cross. And who's standing there? His mother. Jesus loved his mother. He loved his disciples. He especially loved John the Beloved. And he looks down. He tells them, look, you, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You know, Mary raised her son well. Obviously, she had a part to play in steering him in the right direction and steering him to go out and make something of himself and do something significant with his life. Every mother wants their child to go out and do whatever the Lord wants them to do. We dedicated that baby today, dedicated Layla today. The parents want that child to go far for God. And we are told she's going to be a reconciler. She's going to do great things for God. They won't forget today. Don't let today ever become a distant memory, but let it always be fresh in your mind and in your prayers and in your thoughts. I know sometimes you feel like you're not going to be able to do it. You're like, man, I don't know, God, that I've got what it takes to do this, but God's looking at you today, and he's smiling, and he's saying this, you're surrounded not only with me, but you're surrounded with the family of faith who are here for you. So let today always be fresh in your heart. And you got to know, Jesus was remembering some significant parts of his childhood where his mother was there when he fell. His mother was there when he scraped his knee. His mother was there when he had this and he had that. And now she's there in the toughest time of his life. She taught her son to do things with the right heart and to go after and do whatever God wanted. But in the midst of that, when we live for the Lord, there will be tough times. And she taught him to persevere, but she also showed up when it was tough. She showed up when it was tough. Here Jesus reminds us as he's looking down and he says this to his mother and he says this to John the disciple, that when life does get tough to look around, to see those who are still with you in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of setback. One, embrace the church who stands by you when the world is against you. And secondly, be willing to stand with others when life hits them hard as well. I've heard many times people in church say, you know, my spiritual family is better to me than my own family. I've heard people say that before. And my heart grieves because I'm like, that's, that's great, but I, I feel for you. But I'm glad that they drew close to their faith family. They understood that, hey, if I'm going to ever be what God wants and do what God wants, I've got to have faith, and I've got to have the faith family in my life. Not only are we called to embrace the church, the family of God, as life gets tough, 
but we are also called to stand with others when life gets tough. There has to come a point in time where we no longer are just receivers, but we move across the line of maturity and also become givers. That if you're one serving the Lord and you're always wondering, what can so-and-so do for me? When will so-and-so call and check on me? Or when will so-and-so ever invite me to do whatever? Or when this or when that? If it's always about you, you have not crawled, you have not really grown up. You have to cross a line from being a receiver and also be, ter- be determined to also be a giver. Because here's what happens. If you're always going to be a receiver, pretty soon people are going to get tired of doing that for you. And there are going to come a time of expectation that God puts on you to step up, rise up, grow up, and not only just be a receiver, but also be a giver. I know that doesn't sit well with some. But I look at it this way in the New Testament, what I call the New Testament one another's. I'm just going to read a few of these. They're not on the screen, so just listen. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 says, encourage one another with truth. John 15, 17 says, love one another deeply. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and affectionate toward one another. Acts 2, 44, share with one another. 1 Peter 3, 8, live in harmony with one another. 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another. And, and finally, James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. I know that's not real popular. And pray for one another. There's a lot of one another's in the New Testament, and that alone, just those seven, completely bash the idea that any person can do God all by themselves. God didn't create us to do God all by ourselves. He created it to be expressed and lived out in the context of family, of community. You see the inception of the church in Acts 2 It began not just with one, it began with 120 that grew quickly to 3,000, that grew to 5,000, then it began to rapidly multiply and they lost count. But then they began, you see them going house to house, fellowshipping with one another, praying with one another, taking the Lord's Supper with one another, doing all of these different things together with one another. Friend, if you think you can do God all by yourself, you don't need church, you don't need His people, you're sadly mistaken because you will never truly ever live up to the potential that God has for you all by yourself because how in the world are you ever going to love one another if you ain't ever around one another? How in the world are you going to know if you can be kind to one another if you aren't around one another? How in the world are you going to be hospitable to one another if you don't ever invite anybody over to your house with one another? I know it's good because it's not me. This is God's word. That we are called to not only embrace when we need help, but we are also called to give when others need it from us. Jesus' model was he had one, he had three, and he had 12 disciples. He was close to all of them in different ways. John, the beloved, sat on his lap there at the Last Supper, very close together. They just they were like this, right on his shoulder. 
Not in his lap, that'd be weird. <laughs> it was close to three, close to 12. Why do I say that? Because he shows us this pattern that we need a good friend, solid friend. We need a few and we need many. And we're going to draw from all three and all, all different types at different times of our life. Hey, our church, we have a thing called community life groups. They actually meet tonight. They meet the, every second Sunday of the month. We have three particular community life groups that meet regularly every month. You can get information there at the back at our connect table. But I just want to encourage you that if, if you truly need friends, show yourself friendly. That's what Proverbs tells us to do. If we wonder why we don't have friends, it's perhaps we're not that friendly. None of that stuff's in my notes. I'm not trying to, like, just be brutally honest with you today. But I'm just going to tell you, if, if our church really ever truly, if you as a believer ever really want to be everything God made you to be, you got to break out of your shell. you got to quit making lame excuses to God. Because our excuses, may, man, we may think we got the, we're the king and the queen of excuses. And we think they're the best excuse and the reason why we don't. But to God, they're lame. My excuses are freaking lame. I didn't cross the line. I got to get back to the word. No, I can't. Holy Spirit, you better take over. I know it's Easter, Palm Sunday, but the very ones who were waving their palms were the very ones chanting, crucify him the next week. Sometimes we don't know where we are. We don't know us. That's why we got to have somebody else in our life. We got to have some real flesh and bone in our life, some eye to eye, some shoulder to shoulder, some blood to blood, some all that kind of stuff to tell us, look, you ain't all that. You got problems. You need to fix this. You need to get that right with Jesus. You need to humble yourself and quit being so prideful. That's what we do to one another in the church. Number three. I got to close with this one. I need my piano person to help me calm down. That's what David did with Saul. He played the harp and it calmed him down. This is, again, you got to remember the picture of this story. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's hanging on the cross. He's not sipping a latte at whatever espresso shop he is hanging on the cross these final seven statements man they matter and his fifth is I thirst he was completing his mission on earth and he reminds us that the thirst he was experiencing on the cross is the same kind of thirst that we carry in our hearts as we seek to live out our mission on earth, we get thirsty. Not just physical, but there is a thirst in every human heart that longs to be quenched. And the only one who can quench it is Jesus. 
Jesus was traveling back to Galilee or from Judea to Galilee and he said he had to go through a Samaritan village. Sikar is the village he stopped at. You can read about it in John 4. And he stops and he sits next to the well, the well that ancestors Jacob had built. And he was tired. He was on a mission. But he was tired and he was thirsty. And it was about noon that a Samaritan woman came carrying her water pot to draw water from the well. And Jesus stops her and he says, hey, can I get a drink? And she's taken back because she's like, hey, Jews aren't supposed to talk with Samaritans. We're not supposed to be mixing like this. What's going on? He says, well, really, if you knew who I was and the gift that God was trying to give you, you would actually ask me for a drink. Because the water that I give, he who drinks from it will never thirst again. And she's looking at him. She's like, well, where's your rope and where's your bucket? You don't have anything to draw water from. He's like, listen here. I'm not going to draw water from that well that you're about to draw from. He says, look, if you'll drink what I have to offer, you'll never have to run around scared, looking over your shoulder, wondering who's talking about you, wondering who's against you, because you'll be satisfied from within. You won't get satisfaction from without. She's like, well, dang, I got to have some of that. Let me have some of that water. He's like, okay, all right, we're going somewhere. You need to go and get your husband then. And she's like, well, truth be told, I'm not married. He's like, you're right. You actually have been married five times, and the dude you're living with now, you're not married to. And she's like, oh, snap, you're going to get real now. Oh, she said, you must be a prophet. She said, well, let me ask you this. You guys, our ancestors say that we should worship, you know, on this mountain. And you guys say you, you should worship in Jerusalem. She's going to try to turn the conversation now. And he's like, lady, I don't, I don't have time for some theological semantic debate with you. She's, he said, I didn't come here to talk to you about where to worship. Let me just set you straight. I don't care where you worship. He said, God's just looking that you worship him in spirit and in truth from your heart. Quit trying to fake it. Quit trying to pretend. Quit trying to act like you ain't got no problems. He said, I don't care where you worship. Worship right here. Worship right here. And she's like, well, I don't know about all that. She goes, I'm just going to wait around for the Messiah. Then when the, when the real Messiah shows up, I'll just let him sort it out then. And he's like, lady, let me tell you something. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I have stopped here today to quench your thirst. And it said immediately, here's what she did. She dropped her water pot and ran back to her village to tell everybody what Jesus had just done for her. And that village came a-running and looking and wanting to find out for themselves. Here's the thing. In life, like this Samaritan woman, we can all become burdened down with life's choices and questions to the point where we are so parched within that all we do is look around for something to satisfy us. 
This story teaches us that, yes, we get thirsty. All of us are thirsty within. It also teaches us that we carry our water pot, our burdens, trying to find satisfaction for our thirst. But it also tells us that we sometimes drink from the wrong well. And it also teaches us that we try to pretend that our burden is really not a big deal. If it wasn't a big deal, then why do we keep trying to fill it with the wrong water? And lastly, it teaches us that we just need to lay our burdens down. Lay our burdens down. What kind of burden are you carrying in your life today? See, that lady came carrying a heavy burden, but she left carrying hope in her heart. Jesus hanging on the cross. His fifth out of seven statements shows the world that he is the only one who can truly satisfy our thirst. He's the only one. Our thirsty hearts, they want to be quenched. And friends, we can't, we, there's only so long we can, we can try to carry our heavy burdens. There's only so long we can try to pretend they're not a big deal. There's only so long we can try to hide and, and act like we don't really have any issues. But this, the moment we lay them down is the moment we pick up hope. The moment our hearts become satisfied. Listen to this, this closing text here. Jesus says, are you weary? Are you carrying a heavy burden? Then come to me. I will refresh your life, for I am your oasis. Simply join your life with mine. Learn my ways, and you'll discover that I'm gentle, I'm humble, and easy to please. I love that. Easy to please. I think we make it too hard on ourselves to please God. Because we have these preconceived religious man-made ideas that we think we're supposed to do and follow in order to please God. Just come to me. You'll learn me. You'll learn what I'm about. It says, you will find refreshment and rest in me. For all that I require of you, man, this is good, will be pleasant and easy to bear. Now, true, are there some things God asks us to lay down that we find difficult to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. We find that difficulty because within, we're fighting for control. And we think if we can just be the controlling ones, that we'll be okay. But it's really not until we let go and we let God will we ever really be okay. What I require of you will be pleasant and easy to bear. What makes you feel far from God? 
What is it in life that makes you feel far from God? What keeps you isolated from the body of Christ and truly, truly, authentically building genuine relationships in the church? What makes you thirsty? What makes you burdened? Jesus just said the cure to all that as he hung on the cross for all the world to see is this, come to me. Come to me. And he'll give us a refreshed life, a rested soul.